Welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Colossians. We are in chapter 1. We're picking up at verse 15. And as we noted in our previous session, chapter 115 really is part of the preceding section that began in 1 verse 9. And it's uh, Paul's extended prayer and then kind of reflection on Jesus that grows out of that prayer on behalf of the Colossians. And so let's set that in context here. Paul has been praying for the Colossians. He's been praying for God to help them really walk in a manner uh, pleasing to him. He has, out of that, described how God is the one who delivered them from the the dominion of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of God's uh, Son. And that leads then into this moment we're at in the letter where Paul begins to give this magnificent reflection on the person and work of Jesus that begins here in verse 15. And so while grammatically this is connected to verses 9 through 14, there's just so much in here that it made sense for us to split this section into two. And thematically, because this focuses so much on who Jesus is, um, in addition to the prayer, it makes sense for us to just focus on this as well so that we can reflect on what he says about Jesus. But don't lose connection with the context. Paul's praying for them. He's praying for them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And as we go into the rest of the letter, that's going to look like them realizing that they have everything they need in Jesus, that all their sufficiency is found in Christ. And so this reflection, though we're taking it separate from the prayer, really is critical to them being able to grow spiritually, remain faithful, and to grow in the knowledge of God because Jesus is the centerpiece of who and what God is doing in the world. And so Paul turns at this moment in the letter to focus on Christ and highlight that work. Now this tribute to Christ can be broken down into two parts. The first part, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, focuses on Jesus in relation to creation. And the second part, 1, 18 through 20, focuses on Jesus in relationship to the church. Or you could almost say new creation, because that's really who the church is, is the expression of new creation. And so creation, new creation, creation, church, that's the two parts. And then coming out of that, the last few verses then, will really directly address the Colossians and, and call them to live out faithfully the reconciliation they've experienced in Jesus. Okay, so with that, let's then look at the details of this section. Let's pick up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul begins to reflect on the person and work of Jesus in relationship to creation. He says this, he, Jesus, because he had just talked about God's own son who gave us redemption in verse 14, he, Jesus, the son, is the image of the invisible God. That's the first thing he says about him. Now, no one has seen the invisible God. That's the way the Apostle John puts it. But the Son of God, the uniquely begotten Son, He has revealed Him. He has displayed Him to us. And that's really Paul's point here as well, is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the perfect human who totally reflects God. He is the very image of the invisible God. So you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. In fact, that's a good way to actually read the Gospels. Just read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the ones that tell the story of Jesus. And as you watch Jesus in action and you see what Jesus is like, 
remember, you're seeing the image of the invisible God. And so let that instruct you about who God is so that you can grow in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his will. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then Paul says he's the firstborn of all creation. And that word firstborn is prototokos in Greek. And it has a primary meaning and a secondary meaning. And the primary meaning is the idea of really rank, power, authority. For example, a king's firstborn son succeeded him on the throne. And it could even be an adopted son, somebody he appointed to be his heir and successor. Well, that would be his firstborn. That's the primary meaning of this word prototokos. The secondary meaning is the first to do something, the forerunner of something, and that usage will actually be uh, used later in this very section about Jesus, but here it seems to be that primary meaning, this idea of power and rank. So when he says the firstborn of all creation, he doesn't mean, as um, some groups have said, that he's the first created thing. What he means is he is the ruler of all of creation. He has the first place in all of creation. He is the one that's in charge of all of creation. You see that clearly in the context where it's emphasizing his authority, his power, his dominion, right? His rulership, that he's over everything. He's in charge. He's the king. He's the one that God has said, you are the ruler of all of creation. And that's the emphasis here. So he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all of creation. And then it goes on to describe even more what that means for by him. Notice that for indicating this, this idea of explaining what he means as the very image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all of creation means that by him, all things were created. He's the one who brought everything into existence. Not just some things, not just most things. Everything was brought into existence by him. By him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And so, Jesus, the Son of God, the image of the invisible God, he is the creator of all things. He's the one through whom all things have been made. And Paul makes it very clear how comprehensive that is. Things in heaven and things on earth. And so things in the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, the, all the galaxies, right? Uh, things in the spiritual realm that are invisible and unseen and things upon the earth. Everything from the big things to the small things. He made it all. That's all created by him. Visible and invisible. Things that you can see, things that you can't see. He made it all. And then he even lists off thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. And Paul's point by listing those off, those refer to various powers, various forces, both uh, physical forces, maybe human forces, authority figures, rulers, right? He made all of that. But even beyond that, supernatural powers. And that's what oftentimes these words and phrases meant in their uh, ancient context was those invisible forces and powers that we don't understand that we know are arrayed against us. And so Jesus made all of that as well. So everything, the visible world, the invisible world, the spiritual world, the physical world, uh, the earthly sphere, the heavenly sphere, everything, he made it all. All things have been created, as he ends verse 16, through him, 
He's the agent through whom they were made. He's the power. He's the one in charge. He's the individual through whom they were made and for him. Don't miss the simple little shift in preposition. For him means for his purposes, for his glory, for his honor, for his plans, right? So all things, including you and I, have been made through him and for him. And so what does that mean? Well, verse 17 tells us he's before all things. And before means both in time and in rank. He's before all things. Like there, before everything that, that was created was created, he was there. He's pre-existed everything. So in time, he's before all things, but also in rank and in supremacy, right? He is first place. He's before everything. He's number one. And then he says, and in him, all things hold together. Everything that the whole universe, that the whatever force it is that holds uh, atoms together and galaxies together, Jesus ultimately is the one that's behind all that. He holds all things together. So he's in charge of everything when it comes to creation. He brought it all into existence, and were it not for his sustaining power, it would break apart at the seams. He's in charge of all things. And notice the repetition of that phrase, all things, over and over again through this, right? He is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Hopefully, you notice that phrase. Paul is trying to really drive home the point that Jesus is like, he is the one in charge of everything. And this whole universe revolves around him and is held together by him. But it doesn't just stop at the created world. And so as we noted in our introduction, verses 15 through 17 focuses on creation, but verses 18 through 20 focuses on new creation or the church specifically. And so in verse 18, he says, he is also the head of the body, the church. And so now we make this shift from just creation in total to the church, God's people, where his new creation work is being done. And so he is um, the head of the body, the church. And this is a familiar imagery in scripture that uses the picture of the church as the body whom, of whom Jesus is the head. We are his people, and he is the head of the body. He's the one that's in charge of that. In other words, he is the one that really is the control center of the church, the control center of his people, the church. And then he goes on and says, he is the beginning in verse 18. Well, what is he the beginning of? The beginning of what? Well, he's the beginning of new creation. He's the beginning of this work of redemption where God is going to put everything back to proper working order again. And so as the head of the church, he is also the beginning of new creation, right? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that if anyone is in Christ, um, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Well, Jesus is the beginning of that. How so? Well, the next phrase clarifies that. He's, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And there's that word prototikos again. And so we had firstborn of all creation. He's in charge of it all. He is the one who made it all. It belongs to him. He's the, the king over all of it. That's that first sense. But here we have the firstborn from the dead. And that means he's the very first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. He's the forerunner of 
what's going to happen to everyone else who is in him, to all his people, his body, they too are going to be raised from the dead as the ultimate work of new creation. So he's the beginning of new creation work through the power of his resurrection so that, Paul says at the end of verse 18, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So what he had by virtue of rank through creation, he now has by virtue of work through new creation. He, by virtue of being raised from the dead, now has first place in everything. And so as the Lord of all of creation, he is also now the uh, the former and bringer of new creation. And all those who are in him look to him and recognize he is their life source. He is the giver of new creation. So he has first place in everything. He's number one. In verse 19, Paul goes on and says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. In other words, this work of new creation, this work of um, forming a new humanity in himself through whom he could have first place. This wasn't like a begrudging thing. This wasn't like something that's like, oh, I guess I have to do it. No, it pleased the Father to do it. It pleased God to, to have all his fullness to dwell in him. That phrase, the fullness, seems to be important in the context of Colossians. And perhaps it was because of some of the ways the, the false ideas that were swirling around the church were couched. Because we'll see this again in chapter 2 where it says that all the fullness of deity dwells in him in Colossians 2 verse 9. That phrase seems to suggest that perhaps what was being told to the Colossians was, if you want to really experience the fullness of God, well, you need to add some of this Jewish stuff to you and some of these other ideas to your you know, religious experience. And then you'll experience the fullness of God. Paul wants to say right up front that all the fullness dwelled in Jesus. And that was by God's design. That was the Father's good pleasure. It pleased God for all his very godness to be made flesh in the person of Jesus. And verse 20, and through him, it was the Father's pleasure through him to reconcile all things to himself. And so he now is reconciling all things back to God. And the idea of reconcile is to make peace, to make friends again, things that were enemies and at odds with each other are now pieces made and they're brought back to this relationship of shalom, of friendship, of harmony. And so through Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself. And it was his good pleasure to do that. In fact, Paul goes on to say the second half of verse 20, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. What, what an amazing twist in the, the plot story of Jesus and the plot story of reconciliation and in the plot story of humanity, that an instrument of uh, oppression and tyranny and aggression, a Roman cross, one of the most cruel torture devices ever uh, invented, a Roman cross, this, this device of, of oppression and tyranny, becomes the tool by which God makes peace for all things to be reconciled to him. And so God uses the worst that humans could do to be an instrument of peace between humans and himself. And then Paul elaborates just a little bit further when he says that um, through him he's going to reconcile all things. He emphasizes and says, through him I say, whether things on earth 
or things in heaven. And the point of that phrase is to emphasize how comprehensive the reconciliation is that God has brought through Jesus. That it includes everything. Everything is going to uh, be marked by peace and shalom someday. But it does raise the question of, wait a second, how does that work? How does that work? What things in heaven need to be reconciled? What what are we talking about? Does it just happen automatically? And, and it's not really Paul's point. Paul's point is, is that Jesus' work is so powerful, so comprehensive, that he will bring peace to all of creation. And he'll do so through the work of the cross. And so we don't have to try to force everything to fit that. We also know that it doesn't happen automatically, right? Like when he says you, he reconciled people to himself through the cross. Well, that doesn't happen automatically. People have to respond to the reconciling work. And so what we, what we need to understand is the primary point of this is the comprehensiveness of his reconciliation, that the work of Jesus is ultimately going to mean that shalom is going to be the order of the day in God's creation, and everything is going to be put back to proper working order. And now Paul turns in verse 21, he turns his attention specifically to the Colossians and, and applies this idea of reconciliation to them. He says this in verse 21, he says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, and so you, Colossians, and by extension, us who are reading it today, who are now in Christ, you were formerly alienated. That is far off from God, distant from God. And you were hostile towards God, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. It was our evil deeds was the expression of and the cause of this alienation and this hostility, our evil that broke that relationship with God. Well, even though that was once true of the Colossians and us, yet, verse 22 says, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. And so that very reconciling work doesn't just stay out there in the abstract. It's now brought down to the particular, to the Colossians themselves. They were reconciled. They've experienced this peace with God that was brought about through his fleshly body on the cross, through the blood of the cross, as he said in verse 20. And this idea of fleshly body through death, again, it paints this picture of what did it cost, this reconciliation? And God uses um, oppression. He uses unpeace to make peace. He uses the worst thing that sin could do. Um, the wages of sin is death. Uh, death is really the, the dissolution of everything that's good in God's good creation. The worst that sin could do, God used to bring about the, the most powerful, beautiful thing that God could do reconciling people to himself. And so he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to, here's the ultimate goal, goal, here's the ultimate purpose of this, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. It's this picture of uh, the church there in Colossae, these people being presented like an offering to God the Father, holy blameless and beyond reproach. And, and we are that in standing because of the work of Jesus. We are that in position because of what Jesus has done. We already have the designation holy, right? We're saints. We're God's holy people. We're blameless because our sins have been forgiven. We've been washed clean. We're beyond reproach. And yet, we also know that by his spirit, God is actually going to make us that way. He's 
actually making us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so that's the ultimate purpose is someday for his people to be completely holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, presented to God as an offering, as his restored, redeemed creation, to now care for the earth the way he always intended. And, and so that promise of being presented this way now comes with a condition, however, in verse 23. This reconciliation work doesn't just happen accidentally or automatically. There is a condition involved on our side, and we need to respond appropriately to it. And so he says in verse 23, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, right? Like you have now been reconciled. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And so um, this promise is for you, this reconciliation, this holiness and blamelessness and beyond reproachness where you can be handed to God as this offering. That promise and that expectation, that glorious destiny is for you, he says, if if you continue in it, if you stay faithful to it, you continue in the faith firmly established to the end, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And so um, we will experience the blessings of the gospel as we remain faithful to the gospel. And that is what God ultimately wants for them and for us. And so the promise, as N.T. Wright says, or this promise like most, has a condition. The hope holds good, N.T. Wright says, if Christians hold on to it. Did you catch that? I like the way N.T. Wright says that. He says, the hope holds good if Christians hold on to it. And so we must not be moved away from the hope that we have in the gospel that we have heard. And then Paul says, which was proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. And I suspect Paul is just speaking in somewhat generically and somewhat anticipating of what, what God's commission is, that uh, it's going to be preached everywhere. And it's being preached everywhere in his day. It's going to continue to be preached everywhere. So he, he states it almost as an accomplished fact because he's anticipating that God's going to bring this about. And now, 2,000 years after the Apostle Paul, here we are. And it is has been preached largely everywhere throughout the earth. There are places where the name of Jesus has not been preached yet and not known and still needs to be preached. But that's Paul's expectation and hope is that it's going to be preached everywhere under heaven. And he says, of which I, Paul, was made a minister, of, of which I was made a servant. And so Paul is a servant of this gospel on their behalf and ultimately on our behalf. Um, and Paul is going to turn to describe his ministry a little more fully in verse 24 and following. So let's just wrap up this section. Obviously, you have this beautiful tribute and praise to Christ, and it's the kind of thing that we as Jesus people should, should pause and memorize. If you, if you haven't done that, this would be a great text to start with, verses 15 through 20. Just memorize that. Soak in it. Dwell on it so that you can be filled up with Christ, because ultimately what the purpose of this paragraph in the entire letter is to really be the foundation on which our lives as God's people is built, and the mature humanity that God is trying to form us into through his, through Christ and by his Spirit is to be rooted and grounded in this the majesty of Jesus. And so it would be worth your time just to take this uh, passage and memorize it, soak it, pray it into your bones, and and meditate on it so that you have this beautiful portrayal of who Jesus is, uh, really to be the, the bedrock foundation of your life. 
And then once you begin to read through that and reflect on that, let it, let it turn back into praise from your own heart through your mouth back to the Father so that we become a people of praise like the Apostle Paul is a person of praise. He looks at Jesus and he sees his glory. He sees his majesty. It captivates his mind and his heart and his soul. And he speaks these rich words of tribute to Jesus. And we can become the same kind of people as we fill our mind with this kind of picture of Jesus. And so may we fill our mind with Paul's words and his descriptions about Jesus and then use those words in turn to speak our own tribute and our own praise to Jesus for all his majesty and all his glory. Hi friends, it's John, and as many of you know, the Listener's Commentary is an entirely crowdfunded endeavor, and I want to say thank you to each and every one of you who give to support this project. Whether you give $5, whether you give $50, $100, whatever you give, it's all incredibly helpful. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to support this project, just go to the listenerscommentary.com, click Give, and you can support right through there. God bless, and thank you so much.